What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I kept encountering that when I was working on the book, where you think you're talking to Rick Fox about Rick Fox, but you're always drawn back into Shaq and Kobe. You know, mm. you think you're talking to Devin George about playing at Augsburg, and all of a sudden you're back talking about Shaq and Kobe. And just, I've never covered a dynamic as that all consuming than the two they had. And I did find something crazy about it. Not insane, you know, in a clinical sense, crazy, just sort of, man, that's crazy. They cannot get along, man. That's crazy. It always comes back to them, man. It's crazy. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we talk to the author of the new book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the crazy years of the Lakers dynasty, 1996 to 2004, Jeff Perlman. Also, I've got choice words about the miscarriage of justice in regards to Breonna Taylor, who was killed in her bed by police in the city of Louisville, which is also the birthplace of Muhammad Ali. I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards and more. But first, Jeff Perlman. You take on these huge, bold, technicolor projects when you write books, Jeff. Uh, what, what, why this one? Uh, I mean, I'm always looking for big characters. I think that's part of it. Number one, because just being honest, it, it's a lot easier to get a book deal when you're writing about Shaq and Kobe than, you know, Terrence Stansberry and Derek McKee, you know, like just it's a, those those references for you were for you, by the way. Both Thank you. I'm, I'm thinking about the Statue of Liberty dunk of Terrence Stansberry right now. From Delaware, not the University of, but Temple. But why do I know these things? I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, like big characters are helpful. And um, I moved here to Southern California about six years ago. So kind of had a lot of exposure to the Lakers. I wrote a book about the Lakers. They're generally a pretty good organization to work with. And I just thought I know. I know Cobra wrote Mamba Mentality, and I know Shaq has written three or four books and Phil Jackson, but I just thought if you talk about an actual chronicling of the of the era, 96 to 04, there, wasn't, there was kind of a little bit of a vacancy, so I just went for it. Now, you know, part of the title of the book, and I know as authors, you know, we don't always write the titles, but, you know, you include that word crazy, as in crazy years of the Lakers dynasty. I mean, you've covered a lot of teams that I would definitely put that word on you know, the 86 Mets, the 92 Cowboys, those were some crazy teams. What was so crazy about these Lakers team? Because uh, that, that, that word really stuck out for me. Maybe it wasn't the best word, actually. I don't know. I, um, because they weren't crazy. It's not crazy in the way where, you know, like the Dallas Cowboys had one of their players masturbating in the locker room in front of his teammates. <laughs> yeah, you see, that's crazy. That yeah. is crazy. Yeah, in the 86 Mets, you know, they were snorting coke and blah, 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 and all this stuff. I kind of, I, when I was thinking crazy, I meant more sort of the interpersonal dynamics between the people, and in particular, obviously, the two stars, uh, Shaq and Kobe, and sort of the the weird, like, passive-aggressive, occasional physicality, always lingering there. Um, you can't escape it even when you try to escape it sort of thing. I mean, I, I kept encountering that when I was working on the book, where you think you're talking to Rick Fox about Rick Fox but you're always drawn back into Shaq and Kobe. You know, mm. you think you're talking to Devin George about playing at Augsburg and all of a sudden you're back talking about Shaq and Kobe. 
and just I've never covered a dynamic as at all consuming than the two they had. And I did find something crazy about it. Not insane, you know, in a clinical sense, crazy, just sort of, man, that's crazy. They cannot get along. Man, that's crazy. It always comes back to them. Man, it's crazy. Why can't they just put their egos aside? And the word I kept using when I was telling people about it was crazy, but not crazy insane crazy. Mm. Yeah, you see, um, I'm looking forward to really opening this book. I was hoping for a lot of Devin George and Augsburg as a McAllister College graduate. I was hoping for the ins and outs of the associated colleges of the Twin Cities, but I guess... Uh, you will get that. You will get a lot of Devin George in this book. Oh, nice. <laughs> I love Devin <laughs> George. a point of pride for me. Um, there's this total fascination, of course, as you well know, with Kobe Bryant since his death. Um, were you able, I mean, what was that like, you know, cause you know, writing these kinds of books is always, you know, pardon the expression in this context, a moving target. But in this case, I mean, that's really writ large. Uh, were you able to squeeze in a discussion about, uh, his death and even some of the revisionism about Kobe since, since the, the horrible crash in January? That's a good question. I am. Um, so, all right. I, he died right after I finished the book and the book was approved and ready to go and blah, blah, blah. And this is January, obviously. And um, when he died after kind of the just dismay and shock and sort of observing it all faded a little bit, I wrote a, um, I was able to insert an author's note, just an author's note. And it was about, it's about three pages. It's at the front of the book. It's the first thing you read in the book. And it was sort of about how, um, you need to, it's important to remember in this devastation and this sadness that the book you're about to read is just a sliver of a period in his life and it's a growth period in his life. And that Kobe Bryant at 25 isn't the Kobe Bryant didn't seem like at 41. And it's important to realize people have journeys and this is part of his journey. And I definitely wrote that for two reasons. Number one, because I actually truly sincerely believe it. And number two, I mean, a little bit of a protective crouch because emotions are really raw. And the last thing you want is people thinking, um, you came along, you saw this guy died and you thought, oh, this is great. What a great opportunity to squeeze in a book, you know, and mm -hmm. capitalize on the death. I did not. It's funny, Dave, when I was in, um, about eight days after Kobe Bryant's death, I was in uh, a Barnes and Noble out here in California. And there was a book called remembering Kobe. And it was out eight days after his death. I saw it in the bookstore, full book. And I thought, God, that is so, that's really weird. And I looked at it. And there had been a book that came out about six or seven years ago called, I think, either Guarding Kobe or Defending Kobe. And somewhere between the time he died and probably three days, because it was in the bookstore, that's, you can't do that in a blink. They had taken that old book, put a new cover on it, and called it Remembering Kobe. And I just thought how callous that is, that someone dies and your first thought is, holy shit, we can make a quick buck if we do this really fast. And I always am very worried about that perception. Like, really worried about that perception. Um, and to... The book really, I mean, it does get into Kobe in a lot of not so glowing. There's a lot of ego Colorado. Uh, there's a lot of the way he treated teammates not well. He wasn't particularly good to sort of the rookie free agent class. You know, the Eric Chenowiths and the Paul Shirley's and the Jimmy Kings. He was not, you know, if you judge someone by how they have to be to someone they don't need to be nice to. He wasn't so good at that age. He always seemed to feel threatened, you know, and like worried and everyone became his enemy and he had that chip on his shoulder where he had a real defense thing up. So uh, I definitely get into it. It's a little uncomfortable. Uh, did you get, um, or I should say just in the last couple of months, have you gotten flashbacks to 
uh, you know, what, what you went through writing sweetness about Walter Payton and the way, you know, people went after you for examining, you know, the truth of this person. Of course, you did that years after Payton died. And I'm sure that wasn't something you were eager to do again. But then you have this thing happen with Kobe. And I saw you wrote for Deadspin some of your feelings about writing about somebody uh, who just passed. I mean, is, is this proving to be difficult as you're going out and talking about the book? It's not nearly as bad as I thought it would be. And I think the big difference is when I wrote that Walter Payton. So I wrote the book in Sports Illustrated in an excerpt. Um, about three weeks before the book was coming out. And it was about sort of Walter Payton's infidelity and depression. And I don't think anyone was aware of anything about Walter Payton, except he's mm. a great running back and we love him. You know, in Chicago, he was just an icon, unsoiled hundred percent. I do think people are aware of, of Kobe Bryant. It's not like Eagle Colorado was a secret. Um, it's not like even his sort of moodiness and the surliness is a secret. It was kind of who he was in a way and made him part of who he was, I think to some people. So maybe that's helped a little bit because it hasn't been, I thought it was going to be, I was really in a crouch position expecting the worst and it's been okay. You know, it's interesting because you're, you're right about that in terms of Kobe is written about, has been written about so much and has been chronicled so much. It's not going to come as a surprise to anybody that there, that there has been this other side of Kobe throughout his life that, uh, that demands examination. Um, but I wanted to ask you the same question about Shaq, who, in my opinion, has often been written about far less as kind of this complicated, nuanced figure. And he's just sort of like, oh, it's Shaq. Hey, it's Shaq. Big right. Shaq. Shaq. Who, who is the Shaq that you discovered through writing this book? Um, he's kind of two different, two different sides. Um, in many ways, he's just as lovable and embraceable as you would, as we all think. I mean, he really is his. The stories of sort of kindness from teammates, from Shaquille O'Neal, I've never heard of another teammate who is this empathetic toward them and this giving and this, you know, with that strong of a desire to just help and give. And the st I mean, one of the things I like, like Mike Penberthy from Masters College, who only played with the Lakers for a year and a little bit of a cup of coffee more. Um, he told me when he showed up to the Lakers for his first, he makes a team and they fly to Portland for the first game and he has to buy a suit. And he goes to Banana Republic and buys one off the rack. You know, and Shaq sees him and says, hey, do you, do you own any suits? And he's like, no. He's like, come back tomorrow. And he shows up tomorrow and Shaq's there with his personal tailor. And Shaq oh. buys him six suits made personally for him. Um, Mark Madsen was telling me how, you know, Mark Madsen was this young Laker, Mormon, had recently gone on a mission. And I always compare it to when A.C. Green showed up with the Lakers uh, in 85 um, as, you know, America's most famous college basketball virgin that team made his life miserable and really went out of the way to sort of basically to get him laid but also to kind of make fun of him well mark madsen shows up i don't know if he's a virgin or not my guess would be yes but i don't even know but Shaq just goes out of his way to be this one-man mormon matchmaking firm for him like whenever they're flying on the laker charter and there's a new flight attendant Shaq would be like hey are you mormon madsen told the story where one time he was he was just somewhere and this woman comes up to him and says, are you, says, comes up to him and says, are you Mark Madsen? He's like, yeah. She's like, you know, Shaq was around here yesterday asking me and my friends if any of us were Mormon because they wanted to set us up with you. He just was kind of like that. And he had this real kind of decency and warmth and a need to give love and to receive it. Um, now, on the other hand, he also, it's so stupid in hindsight and kind of immature, this need for him and Kobe to be the quote unquote alpha and to be the main man and to be the highest paid and to be 
the quote-unquote head of the team, um, he definitely had that. And he did not respond well when people didn't sort of identify that or embrace that or accept that. And the way Kobe never bought into it. You know, Shaq wanted, it's so cliche, but it's actually true. Like Shaq wanted to be Batman to Kobe's Robin. He wanted to be big brother, little brother. And Kobe had no interest in that. And that's not even a criticism of Kobe. Just had no interest in that. And Shaq never could really get his head around that. And it really bothered him, this idea that you're rebuffing me. Like you're you're not accepting what I'm trying to offer you. Are you, is this a joke? I don't even understand it. And that really led to a lot of problems for him with Kobe. Mm. And, and so it really was as fundamental as that, as, as the, the story that we've always heard, the story that we've always known, uh, that the two of them were just highly different personality types. Each one wanted to be the alpha, and that led to the destruction of the dynasty. That's basically the story. I mean, there are a lot of nooks and crannies to it, but I mean, that last season, 2003, 2004, is one of the great train. You could write a book. Anyone could write a book about 0304 Lakers, and it'd be one of the great little dramas of all time. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, you take that one year, just in a nutshell. Uh, Gary Payton and Carmelo Malone come, so they're supposed to have this dream team. Only the two guys are ancient. You know, Carmelo's mm-hmm. 40 years old, Payton's late 30s. Um, Shaq wants his contract extended, is really pissed about it, about the refusal of the Lakers to do so. During a, a exhibition game before the season, he runs past Jerry Buss in front of everyone and yells, pay me, pay me, while making the money sign. Um, Phil Jackson has no idea what his status is, whether they're going to bring him back or not. Kobe Bryant is flying in and out of Eagle, Colorado, has no idea if he's going to be going to prison for the next 20 years or not, is upset with the Lakers because of the quality of the plane they're, uh, they're affording him to use flying back and forth, um, is really strongly, strongly considering going to the Clippers at the end of the season as a free agent, tells Mike Dunleavy at some point, um, don't, you know, make sure to get me, make sure to get me. Um, the season ends. Kobe basically goes into the NBA Finals against Detroit, determined to win the MVP of that series, and he shoots him out of that series terribly. Um, his teammates are just furious and fed up. At the end of it, they have a post-team party after Game 5, after the series is over, and Kobe walks up to Kareem Rush um, and says, I'm never playing with that mf again. Um, it's just like, I'm done. I'm done. And it's just, there's so much, there's so much built up so much animosity, so much just fatigue that by the end they were just done. Wow. And did, did part of what play into that at all? Cause that, this is just one of the things I've always wondered. The whole Kobe is being interviewed by authorities in Eagle and the tape is leaked of him saying, why are you talking to me? You should be talking to Shaq or something like that. Yeah. I don't know if Shaq pays his, his women money. Why are you talking to him? Yeah. Um, it definitely hurt. I definitely, it's not the reason this, I mean, the relationship was terrible. It is funny how that, the whole Nick Young, D'Angelo Russell thing became this huge scandal. Mm-hmm. And this was a million times worse, a million mm-hmm. times worse. And, you know, Shaq said, because I asked him about it, and he said, he said he told Kobe that just to make him feel better about what he was going through. He's like, I never paid any women off, man. I can tell you that. Um, and I don't know what the truth is, if he was covering for himself or not, but he was pissed, just pissed about that. But a lot of that came out, although it happened early in the season, um, actually before the season, a lot of that didn't come out until later in the year. So a lot of the stuff, a lot of the negativity had already percolated by the time Shaq found out what Kobe had said to the detectives in Eagle. Mm. And then there's Phil Jackson, of course. I mean, I've got my own mixed feelings about Phil. I'll leave it at that. But who is the Phil 
you were able to connect with? And is it an indictment of Phil at all that he wasn't able to keep this thing together? Um, so I, I actually had a good run with Phil Jackson for this book. I ended up getting eight hours with him in Montana. Oh, nice. Uh, he was really good. Jeannie Bus helped me in a huge way. And I thought I was going to get an hour with him. And I met up with him at a coffee shop. And the first thing he said to me is, um, I said, thanks, man. And he's like, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for Jeannie. I was like, oh, no, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> and we ended up spending eight hours driving around Montana, going back to his house, eating out dinner. It could, he couldn't have been better. Um, I think there's some things about Phil Jackson that are really fascinating. I don't think any he'd actually argue with. Number one, he's actually really awkward. And I don't mean uncomfortably awkward. Like, he's very nice and very friendly. But he's not cool. Like, he's not cool even remotely. And I think sometimes we see guys walking a sideline in a $3,000 suit and his hair, you know, his hair well done. He's got the beard and he's dating Jeannie Buss and he's a coach of the Lakers. He's really awkward. And I think a lot of times, like, I remember one time Tracy Murray told me, Tracy Murray, the former UCLA guard who played with the Lakers briefly, I asked what it was like playing for Phil Jackson. And he said, one time I went up to him and said, yeah, I'd really like to sit down and talk about my role. And Phil said something like, well, why would I want to do that? And that was the end of it. And I remember Howard Beck, who used to cover the Lakers to the uh, LA Daily News, told me, um, one writer one day goes up to Phil, it's Christmas, and says, uh, hey, Phil, Merry Christmas. And Phil goes, yeah, right, um, okay, what do you want to ask me about? And like, there are a lot of those moments, like he, he wasn't smooth. He was kind of a rumpled napkin put into a really nice suit. And I think what he did well with those teams was he let the veterans run the locker room. So, you know, Robert Ory, uh, Brian Shaw, Rick Fox, Parse Grant, later on, Carl Malone, like those guys actually had a lot of power and held a lot of sway in the locker room. And it wasn't Phil Jackson coming in every day yelling at everyone. He would intervene when he needed to intervene. When he felt uh, chemistry was going poorly, he would pull people aside, pulled Shaq aside a lot. He pulled Kobe aside sometimes. He definitely struggled coaching Kobe. Struggled meaning Kobe didn't like listen to coaches and he would break up the triangle and they'd have this system and Kobe would just sort of, you know, start freewheeling and all of a sudden you look and he's shooting eight for 27. Um, but I don't think he could have saved the dynasty. I really don't. I don't think one man could have. A coach only has so much power at the end of the day, especially in the modern NBA. I just think it was it was just so worn down. It'd be like trying to have a car still brake when the brakes or brake pads are, are just bare. I just don't think you could have done it. I really don't. Did you get in with Phil at all about the, the giving of books to players and some uh, tension that might have caused, particularly with Kobe? Did that ever come up? Well, no. The thing we talked about was um, how, how such a – and I talked to different players about this too – how such a large percentage of players never read the books. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like a little bit the books were a little bit of um, – I can't say a gimmick, but it started to feel a little bit like a gimmick where it'd be like, hey, Phil, what books are you giving? And like, I don't know. I'm not so sure like Shaq is sitting down and reading The Art of War. Not that he's not intelligent or, you know, Rick Fox is going to read Nietzsche. I just it just I felt like some of it was a little bit for show and just to look, I'm really Zen and I'm really intelligent. I think he is really intelligent. I think some of it had a little showbiz to it. I don't know. What do you think? What's your beef with Phil? Oh, no beef with Phil so much, but just the, the gap sometimes between the the sort of political affectations and then uh, some of the things he said over the years about uh, young players um, has, has always yeah. been something I've written about, that there's a bit of a contradiction there. Um, and then the thing this. I walked away from Phil Jackson, again, who I like very much. I don't feel like I can guarantee you whether he's a Trump voter or not. Like, I think he's probably not. But it wasn't like you walk away from some people and you know, you know, in fact, you walk away from 95% of people 
You know what I mean? And you're like, well, that guy would never vote for you. Like, I can't say that's a guarantee. He definitely was not. You know, I just don't know. I don't know. I was thinking about that when I was done. Is this guy voting for Trump? I don't think so, but he might be. Yeah. I mean, you know, you never know. Like some, somebody who says some of the things he says, like, and you know, he supported Bill Bradley, who was his friend and former teammate, of course, uh, you know, back in, I think it was 2000 when Bradley, yeah, ran against Gore in the primaries. But then also uh, there's Phil Jackson, who said that you know, he feels like, you know, young black players dress like convicts. Yeah. And you're just sort of like, it makes you look twice and say, what? And well, then, sometimes... Okay. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, sometimes it's hard to tell. This is not a defense of him. I actually mean with people of that era, of that age, and maybe our age soon, I don't even know, but like um, whether it's sort of like the cranky grandma down the street or whether he's trying to make a greater statement. You know, like sometimes it's hard to tell with him whether he's trying to say something and, and put something out there for public consumption that he wants people to sort of think about whether he's just crank the cranky guy who's who's a couple of generations past his prime in in, in societal thought, I don't know the answer to that. Mm. And um, and I think that the Kobe story is he he gave Kobe a, a book about um, a black kid who was raised in a white neighborhood. Oh, yeah, had, You're right. And that really pissed Kobe off or something. Am I, am I getting that right? You're correct, actually. Um, yeah, you are right. I don't think I. I don't even remember if that's in the book. Every now and then someone, I'm not going to lie, this is as honest as it gets. Every now and then I'll be doing one of these interviews and someone will say, did you get into uh, when Kobe and Carl Malone's, Carl Malone and Kobe's wife got into it? And I was like, no, actually I kind of, I kind of didn't and I don't really have a good reason. And I, I knew about the the whole book exchange and I do write about the book um, exchange. What was that? He said, I'm hunting, what did Carl Malone say to Kobe's no. wife? Oh no, there was something Carl Malone Carmelo and Kobe's wife. I think Kobe accused Carmelo of hitting on his wife. That's and, right. And someone asked me what I wrote about that in the book, and I was like, "Yeah, nothing actually." I kind of forgot, or I didn't forget, but I just kind of overlooked it and moved on. Um, every now and then, you have these moments where you're like, "Ah, oh, maybe I should have written about that more." Oh my God. Okay. Yeah, I, I believe he he texted Kobe's wife that he was hunting little Mexican girls or something like that. Oh my God, you know something particularly uh, tasteful. Carmelone has a crazy Carmelone. I write about him in the book. His background is when he was in college, he got a 13 year old girl pregnant. Like there's some, Oh my God. Some ugly stuff in Carmelone's past. Yeah. It was, it was stunning um, to see he showed up. Was it, I think it was in the bulls documentary, but he, he, yeah, he showed up for a hot minute and he, he looked, you know, happily, comfortably old. Yeah. Carl. I think so too. Yeah. He's not even that old. He just has a yeah, really he's not that life. old. I know. But he was showing it. Um, you know, we're, we're, of course, you know, living in an era of, of very heightened political uh, tensions in the athletic community, I'll say, and on teams. Did this team have a political ethos of any kind, or was it just L.A., 90s, 2000, flash, glam, and all the rest of it? Yeah, they had a very little... You won't find any social statements being made by the Lakers of that era. First of all, it's kind of, I mean, not that obviously you have, you know, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King. It's not like there were not teams, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, on and on and on, um, teams and players who didn't make statements before or and after, obviously. I feel like this little sliver in time, mm -hmm. if you look across the league, it was a little bit of me, me, me. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit of me, me, me. It was a little bit of... Um, 
we're not going to take stands. It's too dangerous to take stands. We don't even have a stand to take. I don't think Shaq ever showed much of an interest in it's still in taking a political stand. I don't think Kobe had that much of an interest in taking a political stand. Um, there were some really smart guys on those teams, um, but I don't think there was very little effort to sort of get outside of basketball. Mm. And then just one, you've been really generous with your time, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Um, just one last question for you. Um, you mentioned earlier that you like taking on these bold projects with big figures who already have some pop cultural um, iconography attached to them that you then get to dig into. Um, has there ever been a book topic that you wanted to go after where it was a small character that you wanted to get a larger audience to know? Oh, yeah. There's a book I desperately want to write, but no one will buy it. I want to write a book about... Um... <laughs> Shannon Hoon, the former Blind Melon lead singer who died of a cocaine overdose. Oh, my God. But nobody's buying the Shannon Hoon book. I was Dave, just were, you buying, were you buying it? Yesterday. I'm joking around. I was listening to No Rain no, no, on Friday with my daughter in the car, and I was trying to tell her the Shannon Hoon story. Dave, will you buy my Shannon Hoon biography? Not only would I buy it, I would, I would help you find a publisher for it. I want to read about Shannon Hoon. There was a good book out about Blind Melon a few years ago called uh, A Devil on One Shoulder, and Angel on the Other. That actually was really, really good. It was an oral history of Blind Melon that was fantastic. So, well, Obviously, this comes out of your fascination with the music. Is that where it comes from? I just love Blind Melon. I think there are, I, I honestly think sometimes, you know, paths go in unexpected, you know, they travel in unexpected circles. And I always thought Blind Melon had the chance to be this great all-time, all-time, all-time great band. And then the lead singer dies. And um, I just always consider them one of the great what ifs where now they're just known for this one song that you're hearing with your daughter. But they have this catalog of really good music that nobody cares about. Oh, my God. Well, your mouth, God's ears. I hope that happens. Thank you. Um, I think this. I think in 2020 in America, given everything we're dealing with, I think a Blind Melon book, a Shannon Hoon book would be really cool. Nobody I would really... buy it. I would, I, would, I would enjoy it. I don't think anyone would buy it. Oh, man. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for the time. The book is Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaqville, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty, 1996 to 2004. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. All right. Be well, sir. Uh, we'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you, Jeff Perlman. Thank you so much. Uh, I now have some choice words on Louisville, Breonna Taylor, and Muhammad Ali. Okay, look, I've been wrestling with the devastating miscarriage of justice that's taken place in Louisville, Kentucky, in the case of Breonna Taylor. I've been rocked not merely by this obscene decision to hold no one responsible for her death, but also the fact that Louisville is hallowed ground as the birthplace of Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr., also known as Muhammad Ali. 
One city is now marked by both glory and an act of unspeakable evil. In the same city that Muhammad Ali called home, Breonna Taylor was murdered by the police in her bed. The people of Louisville deserve so much better. I went to Louisville in 2016 for Muhammad Ali's funeral. I saw airport tributes to him as soon as I stepped off the plane. I watched buses pass me by with flashing signs emblazoned with his face. I visited the modest home in which he was raised. I walked the street named after him. I spoke to a right-wing taxi driver, a white guy and Vietnam vet who said to me, and I remember his words exactly, that he loved Ali because I didn't agree with him, but damn it, he had courage. I heard news anchors tell us that his funeral was only Louisville's second ever to have a city procession and day of mourning. The first, I kid you not, was Colonel Sanders, as in the fried chicken. It was one hell of a send-off for the son of a frustrated house painter and domestic worker who was raised on the segregated side of town. I also walked Louisville for hours with those who lined the streets to pay their last tributes as Ali's hearse rode through the city. There were thousands of people. It was almost entirely black, and I'm only saying almost because my pod producer Dan Bloom and I were also present. Experiencing this overwhelming local outpouring of love, I was reminded of the fact that Muhammad Ali, at the height of his fame, would attend demonstrations in Louisville that were fighting redlining, segregated housing, and yes, police brutality. He once said, speaking directly to the black community of his hometown, in your struggle for freedom, justice, and equality, I am with you. I came to Louisville because I could not remain silent while my own people, many I grew up with, many I went to school with, many my blood relatives, were getting beaten, stomped, and kicked in the streets simply because they want freedom and justice and equality in housing. Spending the day speaking to Louisville's people, many too young to have ever seen Ali fight even, about what the chant meant to them irrevocably changed me. So many had met him over the years and Ali would make a point through a joke, a magic trick, or an impromptu sparring session to make the experience forever memorable. It was a reminder about the ties that bind us to the past and the history that can sustain a community through a difficult present. There was deep poverty in Louisville. Legal segregation was gone, but that meant that the black middle and professional classes had moved out of Ali's old neighborhood, creating more immiseration and social crisis for those at the bottom of the ladder. There was also a deep feeling that this was a place fighting to be heard. If struggle is truly the secret of joy, then I'll repeat, it felt like hallowed ground. Daniel Cameron, the Kentucky Attorney General, has desecrated this hallowed ground. In his ambition to remain a Republican rising star, mentored by McConnell and beloved by Trump, he chose his career over justice and made the decision to use Breonna Taylor's body as a stepping stone to reach even greater heights. I know what people are saying about Daniel Cameron. I sure as hell know what Muhammad Ali would have said about Daniel Cameron. But to me, this is less about the color of Cameron's skin than a naked and grotesque expression of what it takes to rise in GOP circles. You protect the cops, you blame the dead, and you assert no matter the cost that black lives, particularly the lives of black women, simply do not matter. For the people of Louisville, Breonna Taylor's name will not be forgotten as surely as Muhammad Ali's. Maybe someday people will walk Breonna Taylor Boulevard in downtown Louisville and speak her name not merely as a tragedy, but as a turning point towards true justice. Daniel Cameron's name, if remembered at all, will be thought of like the person who stole young Cassius Clay's bicycle, which inspired the 12-year-old Clay to take up boxing. 
he will be the anonymous, ignominious cudgel of immorality, whose blows didn't put the people of Louisville down for the count, but propelled them to rise off the mat. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award Stand up. goes to somebody who certainly got it before. It's going to the king, LeBron James, for his comments about the Breonna Taylor verdict. This is what he said when asked about it at a post-game press conference during the NBA Western Conference Finals. Um, I think at the end of the day, respect is respect. And um, I mean, you just look at the history of, you know, of America and uh, the disrespect that black women have gotten all for the last 400 years. Um, I mean, you can't turn a blind eye to that. Um, you know, when I look at my household and, and seeing, you know, my daughter who's five on her way to six, and my wife and my mom, uh, rest, you know, rest in peace, my grandmother. I mean, so many black women that's done so many things for me and seeing the sacrifices that they made, especially my mom when I was growing up, um, there was still disrespect along that way. And it's still like that today. So, um, you know, in the case of obviously in Breonna Taylor's case, it just, you know, shows it once again um, that the walls of a neighbor is more important than, uh, than her life. Um, you know, so... You know, not only did I want to acknowledge that for all the queens in this world, all the black queens in this world, but also the ones that's in my life, my personal ones too. So I just kind of had a moment, um, you know, yesterday. And um, I mean, I have a lot of moments, but I felt like it was important to let, um, you know, black women know that they're not, they're not alone. Um, no matter the disrespect or, or, or what they may feel, don't stop because that's what, exactly what they want uh, you guys to do. I want you guys to stop. Uh, I want you guys not to be as powerful as you guys are, not as strong as you guys are, as determined as you guys are. Uh, they want y'all to be at bay. They want y'all to accept what's going on. And um, you know, I know for sure I won't allow that. Um, I'll continue to, you know, when they're feeling down or they're feeling like there's no um, no journey for them or no gateway for them to, to be heard or be seen or, or Know, be respected or be accepted. Um, you know, my job is to continue to uh, let them know that they are you know, important to everything that goes on, not only in America but in the world. Everything that goes on 24 hours in a day, 365 days, 66 on the leap year. So um, that's what it's about. Thank you. Now, no one less than Kimberly Crenshaw, the person who is credited as being the founder and popularizer of the term intersectionality and critical race study. Uh, She tweeted, this is why King James wins best of everything in my book, because in his supreme badassness, he wants the best of everything for us. 
getting praise from Kimberly Crenshaw, you're doing something very, very right. So just stand up award to LeBron James. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Goes to the NBA owners or governors or whatever they're calling themselves, giving money to Trump. There's a big article this week in The Ringer written by John Gonzalez charting donations by these franchise governors to Trump. And it really is stunning because for all the Black Lives Matter and blazoned on the courts and uh, the players with phrases like equality on the back of their jerseys, guess what? The billionaires who own the teams, like, let's go through it, like Dan DeVos, whose uh, sister-in-law, um, uh, Betsy DeVos, is the one ruining public education in this country, uh, gave millions of dollars to uh, the Republican Party. Uh, Dan Gilbert to the Cavaliers, James Dolan of the Knicks, Thomas Fertitta, who's really just a reprehensible person who owns the Houston Rockets, uh, Mickey Harrison of the Heat, Uh, the Holtz who own the Spurs. I mean, so you have all of these teams that have this ostensible uh, progressive sheen when behind the scenes and shadows, the billionaires in charge are supporting the orange menace. So this predictable hypocrisy earns them a just sit your ass down award. And it reminds me so much of Andre Iguodala, uh, the player for the Heat, who when asked about the you know, all the stuff in the bubble that has like the slogans and all, all the branding for black lives, as we've called it here at Edge of Sports. Andre Iguodala said, is it a marketing ploy or are we just doing it to build relations? It's a marketing ploy. And the proof is in the money. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Jeff Perlman. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigabu. Thank you to everybody out there listening during these difficult times. I hope we could bring you a respite of joy with a side of truth. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.